revisiting our celebration of the Voyager anniversary this week on Planetary Radio. Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Yes, I'm back for this special edition of our show that features our 2022 celebration of the Voyager mission, those twin spacecraft that began their journeys more than 45 years ago. Regular Planetary Radio host Sarah Al-Ahmed should be back with you next week She wants everyone to know she is steadily recovering from the nasty case of COVID she mentioned at the top of last week's show. She's also very grateful for the lovely messages so many of you have shared with her. We rarely repeat a feature, but Voyager's 45th anniversary party at the Jet Propulsion Lab is worth a second listen. Later, you'll hear me get back together with Planetary Society Chief Scientist Bruce Betts for a brand new What's Up segment. And here are a few highlights from the March 3 issue of The Downlink, our free weekly newsletter, beginning with a promotion for a good friend of the Planetary Society and space exploration. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson announced that Nicola Fox will serve as the new Associate Administrator of the agency's Science Mission Directorate. Nikki previously ran NASA's Heliophysics Division, a job she got after serving as Project Scientist for the Parker Solar Probe. You'll hear my conversation with her at the Voyager celebration in this week's show. Coincidence? The European Space Agency has also chosen its new director of science. She is astronomer and astrophysicist Carol Mundell. Professor Mundell became president of the United Kingdom's Science Council in 2021 and was the first woman to serve as chief scientific advisor at the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Congratulations to both of these outstanding leaders. We got more proof last week that old planetary science missions never die. NASA's Magellan spacecraft mapped Venus with radar back in the 1990s. Some of that data has now been used to reveal areas where heat from deep within the planet may escape to the surface. A spectacular image of one of these so-called coronae, a circular collection of deep surface cracks, is waiting for you along with much more cosmic goodness at planetary.org slash downlink. Here is our special coverage of Voyager's 45th anniversary that we first presented in August of 2022. Voyager 2 lifted off from Florida on August 20, 1977. Its sister craft, Voyager 1, followed on September 5. Scientists and engineers hoped they'd last at least five years, They've now been exploring and reporting their findings for nine times that span. Both are now deemed to have reached interstellar space, where most of the influence of our star ends and the forces of the vast Milky Way galaxy take over. Ahead is the Oort cloud of comets that reach halfway to the next nearest star. The Voyagers are unlikely to still be alive by then, but they will go on across the void for perhaps billions of years. Each carries greetings, messages of hope, pictures, and sounds from across our life-filled planet, and the best playlist ever created, in my humble opinion. And all this is after they reveal the worlds of our outer solar system as never before, teaching us again that our neighborhood is full of surprises. It was several months ago that I first heard from Linda Spilker and Suzanne Dodd about their plans for a party 
I'm so glad to have been invited. Linda has returned as Deputy Project Scientist for Voyager, even as she continues as Project Scientist for Cassini. And Suzanne is the latest in a distinguished roster of project managers on the Voyager mission. Their party took place in the Jet Propulsion Lab's Von Karman Auditorium, right where people have gathered over and over to hear the announcements of Voyager's discoveries for 45 years. Linda and Suzanne took turns as onstage MCs, welcoming current lab staff, interns born well after the Neptune encounter, media folks like me, and with great honor, members of the mission team who go back a half century. None were as honored or celebrated as Ed Stone, the only project scientist Voyager has ever had. Ed's health prevented him from presenting, but he enjoyed being greeted by hundreds of attendees, young and old. Here's part of Suzanne's tribute from the Von Karman stage. Ed's been on the project for 50 years as a project scientist, and that almost deserves, I think, a standing ovation. So Ed, Many of you remember that we talked with new JPL director Lori Leshen on our July 27 episode. Lori took the stage to add her kudos for Voyager and its team. Huge congratulations to this team. Uh, so many of you who have uh, been with this project over many years and, and all of us who stand in awe of it are thrilled to be here to celebrate you and that incredible, those two incredible spacecraft today. So I'm thrilled to have two of my predecessors here whose shoulders I stand on, and uh, this lab would not be where it is today without them, Ed and Charles, so thank you to you both, yes. But really this whole field, our whole discipline of planetary scientists, of which I count myself as one, would not be here without this mission. I think Voyager and Viking really are the foundation upon which all of modern planetary science has been built. And yes, there are other missions and we can argue about whether the earlier mariners and the flybys could, should, should get that credit and they probably should get some. But those two missions, and especially Voyager, as we look to the outer solar system now really becoming front and center in so many of our future uh, plans to explore. It's all about the foundation that Voyager laid. 45 years is an extraordinary accomplishment, but the foundation it laid and the legacy it leaves will live forever. This mission will go on forever because it will always be leading to that next level of exploration. And I've been talking a lot these days. People um, at headquarters are probably getting tired of me talking to them about the fact that I think we need to be thinking much more strategically about exploration of the outer solar system more collectively, more how to get there more frequently than once in a generation, how to make sure it's accessible because of the worlds, the worlds that Voyager revealed to us are so extraordinarily interesting that we just have a very long to-do list in the outer solar system. And so I, I'm so grateful to get to be here at a moment when we are really working to build upon the extraordinary legacy of Voyager. I just hope that you all know that the legacy that you have set is, is safe with us. And we are really, truly committed to carrying forward and building upon this inspirational mission that, that you have given us. 
and uh, not just with what follows onto it, but with these missions themselves. They're still going, right? I was like, 50 years, let's go. Let's, uh, we're already planning. So yeah, the party. We're already planning the party for the 50 years. As, as Carl said, someday humanity will, will venture beyond the solar system, will venture to the stars, and we won't be the first ones there. This craft is the first one. There can only ever be one first, and that really is you. So I'm just incredibly inspired to be able to just be in the same room with so many of you who uh, have carried this mission forward, and especially, Ed, to you, thank you for the science and for the incredible discoveries and for 50 years of commitment, because you've been at it for 50 years with this mission. We will carry that legacy forward. The party continued long after the formal program ended with the full-size mock-up of a Voyager spacecraft as the backdrop I ran into Linda Morabito. Linda, delighted to run into a former Planetary Society colleague, a treasured colleague, but also, you know, we just watched this second episode, The Encounters of Voyager with Uranus and Neptune and beyond. You must have been in the first episode because of your discovery. Remind us. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> I was working on the Voyager navigation mission and completely successful encounter, one of the most exciting times of, of our lives to see uh, Jupiter up close, its moons, it was an amazing time, and to be responsible for, lot, no pressure, but the successful navigation, the whole team that I was on of the Voyagers to, to Jupiter, and it was very, very thrilling, wonderful time. But after it was all the excitement had subsided on March 9th of 1979, after the March 5th encounter, I was looking at the post-encounter planet um, pictures that had been taken for satellite ephemeris development, which of course was the refining the orbits of these moons that we had seen only previously from a great distance. And in doing that, in processing a picture, I was able to see something that it turns out no one had seen before. And that was what now Io is so justifiably famous for, the very first of its volcanoes that you picked out of an image. Absolutely. It looked almost like another moon peeking out from behind Io, and we really had to use the scientific method to consider every possibility of what that crescent was, anomalous crescent, and it was in fact rising about 170 kilometers over the surface of Io, a volcanic plume, and just by the, the phase angle, the lighting, we were able to see simply a crescent of it, one of the most thrilling moments of my life, and I... I cannot even imagine how any scientist could have any more wonderful thing happen to them than those first moments of seeing that. Outstanding moment in the history, of the 45-year history of this mission, if you don't count what happened before launch, but also representative of so many other great discoveries. Incredible. You've got four giant worlds, and we rewrote the textbooks. The Voyager scientists, the engineers took us to these worlds and showed us that they are alive, that their moons represent phenomenon that we could never even have dreamed about or imagined. One discovery after the next. One incredible mission now representing all of humanity in interstellar space. 50 years at JPL? Yeah, 50 years. 
Congratulations, Linda. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thanks so much. We'll be right back after this short break. Ready to level up your space game? Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society, and we are launching our brand new digital member community. This is a place that's built exclusively for Planetary Society members. Here you can connect with fellow members from around the world, join live events you won't get anywhere else, and delve deeper into the wonders of our cosmos and the missions that explore them. It's all about putting the society in the Planetary Society. I'll see you on the digital frontier. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. With the party mostly over, Suzanne Dodds and Linda Spilker joined me in the small museum next to Von Karman Auditorium. Hell of a party, you two. When did we start to talk about this? I mean, you told me months ago, right, Linda? Right. We knew the 45th anniversary was coming up several months ago, and so we started to plan an event at first, low-key, show a movie, have the Voyager you know, family from JPL there, and it suddenly it just started to, to blossom and bloom and inviting retirees, and, and the event really grew. And you had cake, which you had promised uh, at the very beginning. Yes, we had cake, and um, I got to choose the flavors of the cake, so that at least I had some say. Um, it was a great event, and it's, it's great to have retirees come. It's great to mingle with current employees, and I think, you know, everybody that was in the room is touched by Voyager, whether they had spent two years on it, 20 years on it, or even just if they're an intern in, in, in Voyager was what got them interested in space. We were just talking about some of these, those old-timers those uh, Voyager veterans. I mean, I saw Charlie Colhays, got to say hi. It really is wonderful to see this group come together again. And it was especially gratifying to see Ed Stone, that he was able to attend and, and, and enjoy this, even if he wasn't able to, to speak. It was great to have Ed here and to recognize him for his 50 years as project scientist for Voyager. And really, he's sort of the, the heart and soul of Voyager, you know, keeping the scientists on track and making sure that we got out to the heliopause. That's really a credit to Ed. Suzanne, they showed the second episode in this sort of JPL history series that your colleague Blaine Baggett has done. And this was largely, not entirely, Voyager at Uranus, Neptune, and beyond. Let me just thank you because there you were doing some kind of, you were anchoring some video coverage for one of those encounters. Thank you for not staying in my business because I don't need the competition. Uh, yes, I don't think I was very good back then. Um, that was probably my first experience on live television. My public speaking is better now. It was certainly enjoyable and uh, a little nerve wracking, but the Neptune encounter was great. I, f I feel like it was a highlight of my uh, early career for sure. Is that about when you came on board, became part of the mission? I was. I started in, uh, before the Uranus encounter. So I, I worked on Uranus with the science team, helping design their observations. And then for Neptune, I, I moved over to what's called the sequencing team, which is really the group of people that put together the sequences, the command strings that are going to get sent to the spacecraft. And you, you do your best, you, do, you check it, 
triple check it, quadruple check it, cross your fingers. It gets sent to the spacecraft and whoa, are you like glued to your screen to see if the correct images come down and things are pointed in the right direction. And it was just very gratifying to, to see it all work at Neptune. Thank goodness all those zeros and ones were in the right place. Correct. Linda, we've talked about this before, but remind me, you, you came into this mission much earlier. I actually came in in 1977, straight out of college, my first real job, and actually got here in time to go to the launch of Voyager 2. There was a science steering group meeting at the Cape, and they invited all of us new newcomers to come with them and be part of that launch, and it was so exciting. And, and I think about it, I don't think I could have imagined being here 45 years later with two working spacecraft now exploring interstellar space. It wasn't in the timeline. So what's happening? What are we continuing to discover out there in the interstellar void? Well, the discoveries are quite interesting, Matt, because it's not what we expected. We had these ideas just from looking from the inside out. And now that Voyager is actually on the outside making measurements, for instance, it seems like the magnetic field from the sun is controlling far out past the heliopause. And we haven't rotated the magnetic field yet into the direction of the interstellar magnetic field. We can measure the actual cosmic ray density for the first time because the heliopause is an excellent shield from those high energy cosmic rays, that radiation. And so it shields quite a, quite a lot of them out and now we can measure them directly. Also, there are shocks that come from the sun, propagate out into the interstellar medium and Voyager sees these shocks in the magnetic field data, in the plasma wave data, and it's so exciting to see that interstellar space isn't boring. There's a, there's a lot to see out there. It's kind of like being in a turbulent sea, in a sense, and trying to sense the eddies and currents of interstellar space. Suzanne, how are those two old-timers doing? Well, they're, they're hanging in there. They are old-timers. Yeah, you may have heard recently we had a, a little hiccup with Voyager 1, although it looks like uh, we can get over that. We may need to operate the spacecraft slightly differently going forward, but that's what you do with any mission. Once you launch it, you can't go to it and fix it, right? In Voyager's case, it's a little bit of the extreme since it's 15 billion miles from us uh, and it's 1975 technology. Uh, but we can make, make changes to flight software and we can uh, sort of work around issues that there might be with um, command streams and things like that. So that's we're really digging into the problem now, but I think we're, we will be able to work around it. I've asked this question of Linda and others many times, but uh, how much longer do we think we have? Assuming everything continues to work, but those watts continue to fall as that, that RTG cools off. Right. We lose four watts of power a year. And so we've, over time, we've been turning off different subsystems, and we just finished turning off all the instrument heaters. The instruments, miraculously, are still working. They're at, they're at temperatures that they weren't designed for, weren't tested for, uh, but yet they work, and all the data that's coming back is, is still great data. So, again, Voyager is a really incredibly remarkable spacecraft from a longevity standpoint. Um, but looking forward, you know, I would say we have a stretch goal of getting out to 200 AU. You know, as a manager, I say, that's my stretch goal. That's where I want to get, and that, that's 15 more years. I, I definitely think there'll be a 50th anniversary party and, and likely with two spacecraft still operating. When we start to get to 2030, it might be a little more iffy, but every bit of data that Voyager takes now, because it's in situ, it's 
in interstellar space is important. It's unique and it's important. And using in situ data with other spacecraft that are looking at the heliosphere remotely from like our Earth's orbit, you put that all together and you get a much better model of what's going on in, in our heliosphere. And still returning first. Yes, Voyager is definitely the pathfinder. And if you think about it, the two Voyagers are now our first interstellar travelers, collecting data in a place nothing has flown before and revealing new discoveries. And I'm sure there's more to come. Thank you both. Once again, great party. So glad that I could join you. And I'll, I'll see you for the 50th. Definitely. See you for the 50th. Every human culture has rites of passage. They mark the transition from one stage of life to another. We are gathered here to celebrate Voyager's rite of passage. A machine designed, built, and operated right here at JPL has broken free of the sun's gravity, explored most of the worlds of the solar system, and is now on its way to the great dark ocean of interstellar space. The men and women responsible are gathered here. They are heroes of human accomplishment. Their deeds will be remembered in the history books. Our remote descendants may live on some of the worlds first revealed to us by Voyager. If so, those descendants will look back upon us as we look on Christopher Columbus. Voyager reminds us of the rarity and preciousness of what our planet holds, of our responsibility to preserve life on Earth. If we are capable of such grand, long-term, benign, visionary, high-technology endeavors as Voyager, can we not use our technological gifts and long-term vision to put this planet right? To take care of one another, to cherish the Earth, and bravely to venture forth in the footsteps of Voyager to the planets and the stars. Now it's time for us to turn to the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Dr. Bruce Betts, for What's Up. I'm back! (laughs) (laughs) Why? No, where's Sarah? And why am I talking in this voice? (laughs) Sarah, as you know, is recovering. I know. We yeah. wish Sarah well and a quick recovery, not just because we want to get rid of you, but so she feels better. Yeah, this is her seat now. But no, I'm it's good d- to have you back. Welcome I'm, back. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be talking the to you. OG What's Up, the original What's <laughs> Up. That's right. Classic. <laughs> so I tried last night. I even drove up and down the coast a little ways here in the San Diego area to try and see that amazing sight. Didn't happen. Beautiful clouds, but they obscured that rare conjunction. So yeah, it was those pesky clouds. But hey, here's the good news: they will be not much farther apart tonight. So when everyone else goes and looks up, continue to look towards the western horizon in the early evening when it's not cloudy, Matt, <laughs> and you will see super bright Venus and getting lower and lower as the days pass really bright Jupiter, which over the next weeks will fairly rapidly pass below the horizon. But Venus is with us for a few more months. 
it just ticked off Jupiter. So Jupiter is out of here. People should still be able to check it out. And Venus is going to light the sky with the brightest star-like object out there in the night sky that's, you know, not a plane or something like that. If you've still got Jupiter and Venus, draw a line between them. Go up and high in the sky and you'll see Mars looking reddish. Now, there's also the reddish star Aldebaran, which is still a little dimmer. But there's just a party of stars in that part of the sky that is easy to see right now, including Orion with its striking Orion's belt, bright stars all over. Go take a look in the evening sky. It's a wonderful time to look. Uh, and I wish you clear skies, Matt. Now, Orion was in the clear, and boy, it really was gorgeous last night. I don't know why it just stood out so beautifully. All right, well, let's go on to uh, this week in space history. And uh, you actually remember 1781, right? Oh, of course. So uh, William Herschel discovered Uranus this week, 1781. I remember vividly. Much more recently, in 2006... Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter got to Mars, and darned if those orbiters just don't keep going and going. They're still going. And uh, now, for you, would you like to say it? But it's not right for me to say it. No, I want to yeah, hear you true. say it. That's, that's half the fun. Random Space Facts! That was magnificent. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It was for you, man. It was for you. Voyager. Their spacecraft. You've heard about them. As of when this show comes out on March 8th of 2023, Voyager 1 is approximately 60,000 times farther from us than the moon. That is impressive. It's far away. All right, we go on to the trivia contest. Going about things in a positive way as I do, I asked you how many missions to Mars tried but failed for any reason before Mariner 4 was the first successful mission at Mars. Here's the thing. We're not going to do the winner this time. We're going to keep you in suspense because uh, Sarah is in, in charge now of the magic random choices of winners. So we will announce a winner on next week's show and, or whenever Sarah's back, and we'll have a couple winners next week. Winners, winners, winners everywhere next week. <laughs> I am confident that Sarah will be back next week and I would hate to steal the opportunity for her to make some listener out there very, very happy. So whoever you may be, please be patient. And as like Bruce said, well, there'll be two people to announce next time. But I think we can go on to another new contest that you can get people started on. Cool. I can do that. For Voyager, what science instrument on the Voyager spacecraft has a name whose acronym is also the name of a part of an eye, like that thing on your face that you look through to see. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until the 15th, March 15, at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer. I have still a copy of a book that came out last year, Impact, How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture, and Donkey Kong. It's very entertaining by Greg Brenica. That'll be yours if you win this latest contest. I do recommend it highly, and good luck, everybody. And and I have this thing at the end of shows that we usually zone out and miss it, where I, I do this silly thing where I tell people to think of stuff, and then I say, what should they think about? I think that you can take. Oh, uh, okay. Let's see. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about... Oh. 
<laughs> Please include that little noise. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> My microphone and how I'm going to try to keep it busy over the coming weeks. <laughs> Thank you and good night. Thanks for joining us this week on Planetary Radio as we continue to marvel at our place in space. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our stellar members. Mark Hilverda and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Astra.